Hello, and welcome to the Cigar Cast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Mission Cigar and Social here in Spring Hill, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Devin. I'm joined, as I am every week, by a man whose love language is certainly not quality of time, Mr. Shane Reeves. <laughs> you know, usually I wait till the heat of the moment to decide what I'm going to say at the opening. I don't usually think about, okay, what am I going to say at the opening? I just let the heat of the moment spill it for yeah. But today I was thinking, yeah, I've got to tell everybody, I'm really glad to be here doing a podcast. Right? <laughs> you know, regardless of how much you love your in-laws, a lot of time, there's, there's a reason we don't live next door to them. Well, and just, just hosting people in your home in general is tiring. I'm of the school that when I go visit someone, I rent a hotel room. Right. Now, I'm not saying people have to do that. I'm not saying that that's what everyone should do. But for my own personal sanity, I rent a hotel room when I go to visit someone. It's nice having that clean break of, okay, it's bedtime, we're leaving. Right. We're going to step away. We're going to do our thing. Um, We'll catch up with y'all at this time tomorrow. And uh, my wife's family's been in town all weekend. And I hadn't got to see my nephew in a little while, so it's been nice to have him staying with me. Him and his girlfriend have been staying over at my house. And um, it's great. I love them to death, and I've had a lot of fun. But, man, it's stressful. Just because somebody's in your space. Yeah. And there's no escaping. You know, at the end of the night when you want to just sit there and play a senseless game and watch Married with Children, somebody comes downstairs, hey, what are you doing? You know, it, I do find it's better when you're at your house, though, because, you know, my my in-laws used to always rent a hotel room when they would come, but, and even though we're actually closer to the nearest Hampton Inn, which is their hotel of choice, uh, at our new house than we were our old, they've started staying at our house when they come in town. I have no problems with it, but... There have been a couple of times where, uh, you know, say, for instance, they're visiting on a Formula One weekend or something, and it's Sunday evening, it's getting a little late. It's like, okay, guys, I'm going to go sit outside and watch the race. Uh, you know, oh, no, we can turn it on in here. And it's first of all, no, because I'm going to feel like I can't watch the race because I have to. But secondly, like, no, it's my house. I'm, finally, the last time, Noel was like, he's going outside to smoke a cigar. Just let him. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Right. Just get it. Th- just understand this is what he's doing. But by contrast, this past July when we went down to the beach, with, we went with them and all of my uh, brothers-in-law and, and their families and stuff like that. It was much harder in that scenario to be like, okay, I'm going to sit outside for an hour to get away from all of you because then you'd have to deal with it. It was just, it was a lot harder. Well, and people worry too much about making someone else mad. I, I feel like anyone that gets angry at me, it's more their problem than mine 90% of the time. Well, it's not so much about mad as it is taking my situation in in Georgia to be a a good example as I'm the only one who smokes. And most of them have health, asthma and and other things. And so it becomes, A, it's it's a selfish thing, more so than making them angry. It just kind of isn't a great look. But also, these are people that we see once and twice a year. Right. So it does feel really bad rather than sitting inside talking and hanging out and catching up and all that stuff that I'm just sitting by myself. Well, you know, we've all got a meter when we've had enough of other people. Yeah. And mine mine was full a little while back. 
And so it was nice when you texted this morning and reminded me we're doing the podcast. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Why don't y'all go do y'all's thing? I'm going to do the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a really welcome break. Yeah. Kind and of I'll, reset you for the day. Yeah. And then I can go back to being the genial host and mm-hmm. doing everything. And it's yeah. nice. And we'll, I can we'll enjoy it. reset them. your golden retriever meter. That's right. My golden, my golden retriever was ready for a nap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, we, we always, I always joke about Ace in the kennel. I was about to say, we're going to call this your kennel from now on. Yeah, because I told Glenda, I said, the kennel is where he goes to be off dog duty. Mm -hmm. He's not a dog when he's in the kennel. He's in his own little space. And sometimes I I want to crawl into the kennel. So I'm crawling into the kennel right now, and I'm carrying with me a Lopalina Blue label that you gave me a week or so ago. I'm I'm surprised that you still have it. I wasn't sure if you were going to save it for the show. or I guess you've got enough of a selection at home. You don't ever feel like you're itching to get to something. Well, it's not just that so much as this week has just been chaos of everybody being in town. And it's like, okay, I don't want to start a cigar that I want to finish. Right. I want to start a cigar that if something happens and I have to go stomp a fire out barefoot, I can lay the cigar down and not regret it. Yeah, I get that. So it's, it's more lack of opportunity. But it's a Honduran wrapper, Honduran origin, um, Trying to hit more details, and it's given me no more details. That's all the details that Cigars International has given me on this I, cigar. I have found that Cigars International does a terrible job when it comes to trying to find out that kind of stuff. The past couple of times I've searched for a cigar, and they're the first option. I look at it, and it's like, this doesn't tell me anything. Yeah, for some reason, they they just locked up on me. But anyway, it's a Honduran cigar. It's Sumatra wrapper. It's an excellent cigar. And you gave me one of the more classic-looking ones, so I'm interested to give it a shot and see what it tastes like. Yeah, so I, I got those, and they are the original branding. And what I don't know, so they were they were packaged in five packs. So what I don't know is if this was some sort of thing that they they never they've been sitting in storage, just kind of waiting this whole time, or if maybe they were. Uh, late labeled after they had changed the branding. But to me, it tastes like it's got quite a bit of age on it. So I'm curious to see what you think. What are you talking? I think this is going to surprise you. It may not, uh, depending on uh, how situationally aware you are today. But I am smoking a Placencia Alma Fuerte. Not the Solomon. This is the Toro because I've, I've had the Solomon. And in fact, I've smoked at least one a year. Today, even though they have the Solomon in there, I saw the Toro. I've never had this size. I wanted to give it a shot. This is uh, Nicaraguan Puro through and through, origin binder filler wrapper, made in the Placencia factory because, of course, it is. This, the, the Alma Fuerte, and I've said it on the show before, is, a, is, a, is an eight. I, you put, the, for, it's dollar for dollar matches with a Padron anniversary. And if you put the two of them side by side, I would actually choose the Placencia every time. I don't think I would ever choose the Placencia, but I can see how your appreciation of it could reach that level. You know, some people, some, if somebody comes up to you and says, oh, I think the, the Gurkha 17-year-old Cellar Edition is a great cigar, you can't in your mind believe how they come to that conclusion. But I can see in my mind how you could come to that conclusion, whether or not I'm I'm in accordance with it. Right. 
And that that's kind of, you know, now is the Toro still the same price as the Solomon or is it, do they give you a few bucks? It's break? a couple bucks cheaper. I think it's I think it's 24 for the Solomon, 22 for the Toro, something like that. So it's not that much of a It's very slim difference. I had the I had this experience earlier today. When you're already spending that much, it th- right. 2 3 bucks is nothing. I came in here earlier today to watch Titans game with my nephew and his girlfriend and Glenda and we sat down and I walked in and we've had the punch knuckle sandwich on order since the show and they're in there and I said oh man that's great I'm gonna smoke me a knuckle sandwich because I've not had one before that I remembered I may have had one but I, I couldn't remember if I'd had one which is rare for me yeah now having smoked it I know I'd never had one because it's wonderful oh good if I had liked it that much if I had remembered it I and, and about halfway through smoking, I said, "Dang it! I should have waited and smoked this on the show." Yeah, but you thought uh, it was—you thought it was a repeat. Yeah, I thought. Well, I'd, either it, I've never smoked it before, or I smoked it and it was very unremarkable. Undoubtedly, I never smoked it before because it was very good. Right. I was really surprised, and you know, it's in that seventeen-dollar range. It's a little higher price, but I figured I'd pony up the extra three or four bucks and go ahead and give it a shot. Yeah. So, go. Let's do a follow-up real quick. From Shaw Local News Network, number one in Northern Illinois, um, council extends decision date for cigar sign issue. Yeah, so we did this story a few weeks ago about the mural on the front of the cigar shop that because they added a, a cigar, they decided it actually warrants being a sign, which then has to fall within the regulations for how big a sign can be. Blah 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 blah. Um, so they. Um, Lock in or subscribe to continue reading. Didn't After nearly months. thirty minutes of discussion, city commissioners voted five and zero to five to zero to delay their decision for Bad Ash Cigars, one ten North Fourth Street, for those playing at home. Yeah. So essentially, what they've done, and last time I pulled this up, it let me read the whole article, which is to say, we're delaying making a decision, hoping you'll do the right thing basically saying get rid of the cigar so that we don't have to tell you to get rid of the cigar. And that's most likely what's going to happen. Well, if you look at the picture, you see the cigar sitting there and you see the two little bushes to either side. I think a good artist could take five minutes and turn that into a middle finger. Right. <laughs> and then you could say, well, it is a mural. It's not a, right. it's not, there's not a cigar on there anymore. Well, if they would trim those bushes back, it would make the cigar look bigger. Well, absolutely. Basic <laughs> landscaping theory. <laughs> but... Yeah, the uh, I'm. This goes under the category for me of how come we're wasting time on this. Yeah. And I was watching an NFL game today, and they had on the on one of the on the field painted "Stop Racism." Okay, no racist stopped racism because they seen the New Orleans field had it painted on it. Well, it's it's like the the signs, you know, the, the big. You know, million-dollar LED interactive signs on the gantries above the freeway that say, you know, buckle up, you know, buckle up Tennessee or whatever. Anybody who's going to wear their seatbelt is already wearing their seatbelt. Anybody who in 2023 doesn't wear a seatbelt when they get in the car is not going to change their mind because they saw it in big orange letters above the interstate. Nothing. Yeah. I would be interested to know why all this I hesitate to call it, well, the, the stop racism things, virtue signaling. The buckle up Tennessee, I don't know what that is. I think that's just they wanted to blow some cash. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm under, but I'm surprised that this Oregon City Council has nothing better to do than debate the sign with a cigar painted on the side of the building. 
Well, and we talked about it at the time. You know, I think sign ordinances are are stupid in the first place because, it, you know, I feel like that's a First Amendment issue. It is, provi- it is a First Amendment issue, but if you believe the First Amendment gives you the right to paint on the side of your building live nude women right here with a big pair of hooters under it, do you think that's... I mean, I do think the First Amendment gives us those protections. I, now, you know, whether or not... But, and we talked about it last week on the show about blue laws. It, it's the same kind of thing. Like, this idea that we have... Um, I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could remember the the name of the word, but these ordinances about uh, conduct, essentially about um, lewd behavior, lascivious behavior, that sort of thing. And you know, it's it's one of the. It's just kind of a fine line of of what's in good taste and what's in bad. And well, you know, the um, the arguments are always made, and we've been making the argument in here for a couple of days. We have, or a couple of months now. We have a fellow in here that's scared to death of AI, scared to death, because he thinks that it's going to enhance the ability of people to persuade the masses. Which is, and I would tell him this to his face, the dumbest thing ever. Because the whole point of AI is that there's no human intervention. Now, if you want to say that computer programs have that potential, the ones that are actually coded by actual humans and and inherent biases built into them that I could understand. But that's kind of the whole point of machine learning is that it just, it it doesn't fall to those same biases. What ad campaign worked on you as a child? What was the, what was the ad campaign that worked on you as a child? I'm curious to know. I'll, I'll let you think about it and tell you mine. All right. At one point I owned almost all of the He-Man and Masters of the Universe sets. Yeah. Because the filmation cartoon was basically just built to sell those um, toys. To sell those toys, so I owned a ton of those toys, and all whenever there was a birthday or a holiday or something like that, it was very easy. And I dropped them about the same time that everybody else did when She-Ra come out. When right. She-Ra come out, she ruined the whole thing because it was no longer a boy's toy. Now, now they crossed the line and made it a doll, and we all dropped them like hotcakes. Um, but that was, I will say, the one ad campaign that actually impacted me as a child. Now, as an adult, I can't think of one that's really impacted me. I can't really... As, as an adult, nothing really springs to mind. But it, it, it's tricky because I have seen ads for products that I thought, hey, that's a good idea that I wouldn't have known about if I hadn't seen advertising for it. But it wasn't necessarily the ad campaign itself so much as the awareness. Um, But that, again, that's really what advertising is there for anyway. And as a kid, I know, I I think micro-machines were the big ones. That was the thing we were into, the little, you know, 186 scale Hot Wheels. Which was a great idea. Hey, let's make something as cheaply as possible and get guys to buy it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it was they were awesome. I mean, we had the full city with all the interactive little buildings and garages and probably had 300 micro-machine cars. And I, to this day, I will challenge anybody that says stepping on Legos, no, micro-machines are worse. Oh, micro-machines will kill you. And, uh, and the guy that did, that spoke really fast, mm-hmm. that did the commercial, he just died a couple of years ago. I forget what his It's been name. about 10 years. It's been a while, but... I, I forget yeah, what his name was. he actually had the world's record for fast talking 
well, he did the voice of Blur in the Transformers. Uh, yeah. And he had done a lot of voiceover work, but that he's kind of most known for that micro machine. Mm-hmm. You wonder if when they read the, his eulogy, they did it really quick. Rest in peace. I'm sure they did. <laughs> you, you've got, you pretty much got to. So, from Half Wheel. Best Cigar Prices launches Dakini. Dakini? I won't say this is Dakini because it's Hawaiian. I, I thought so, too. It's Dakine. It is. No kidding. Yeah. Dakine brand of cigars using Hawaiian tobacco. And I will tell you that I spent 10 mi- minutes trying to look up the proper pronunciation of this because there's a, a sporting goods brand called Dakine. I used to have their gloves, uh, snowboarding gloves, and I loved them. And I had no idea at the time that that was like a Hawaiian brand. And so when I saw this come up, I was like, I've, and it mentioned Hawaii. I was like, oh, maybe I've been pronouncing that wrong the whole time. And just by happy accident, I had been doing it right. Well, so it's interesting because, like you said, we don't get much Hawaiian tobacco. And I've thought about, I've, I've long wondered this, you know, Hawaiian soil is phenomenal for growing coffee. I love Kona coffee. It's, it's volcanic, just like Nicaragua. You know, it's a very temperate uh, tropical climate. Like, it, all of the signs point to it should be really great for growing tobacco. So I was just kind of surprised that we've never really seen it before. So I'm actually excited about this. Well, but if you can grow coffee and macadamia nuts and pineapple. things like, yeah, pineapples and things like that, and you have such a limited amount of acreage, it is kind of hard to sell them on, okay, let's plant some tobacco. That's true. That's true. Especially when you're really the only place in America that can grow reliably macadamia nuts, pineapple, coffee, that sort of thing. So so now are these coming in a sampler set first? They've got a sampler set up top, but I don't know. Is that something they have put together just for this picture? Because here's the thing. So there's eight cigars in different varieties, and you've got your Habanos, your Maduros, your your Connecticut's, your all of the different ones. I find bringing a new line of cigars into the shop, that's one of the hardest things is, okay, which of, we're not going to bring all eight lines of brand new cigars in. So which ones do we choose? And we usually end up going with something generic and usually find out, oh, that's not the best one. Right. Yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to see because yeah the 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 first photo is all eight of the all eight blends in a box together, but then it shows them each in their own individual box. Now it does say, and I like this, each of the blends only comes in two sizes, robusto and toro. So I I like that. Oh yeah, I like the simplicity. I, I do too. Uh, the robusto is about nine thirty, with the toro being eleven fifteen. You know, we've talked about this before. One of the reasons that tobacco is still grown primarily in Latin America is, is labor cost associated with it. So to be able to bring a cigar like this to market for that price point is really incredible, and I would have expected it to be much higher. Well, I would question the amount of Hawaiian tobacco actually in them because none of them have a Hawaiian wrapper. No, none of them are 100% Hawaiian tobacco. Right. There's no Hawaiian puros coming out of this thing. So, But just shipping cost from the islands to wherever they're being manufactured alone is going to be significant. Right. There's going to be some, some cost associated with that. So it'll be interesting. They're doing a candela, which is unusual. And all the Dakini Gathering Place is an Ecuadorian Habano with Nicaraguan binder and filler from Nicaragua and Hawaii. But it's a candela wrapper. 
So that's interesting for a new line from just go ahead and take the risk on a Candela. Yeah. Which we're not going to, or excuse me, pardon me, the Dakin Lanai was the yeah. Honduran Candela, not the as look. Okay, for now on, people, when you do these articles, put the description of the cigar under the picture, not over the picture. It, it is. The description is under the picture. Oh, I thought it was over the picture. You're right, it is under the picture. Okay, maybe maybe your iPad's right. upside down. Uh, maybe. <laughs> well, I, it's one of the things I hate about Hulu. And uh, my wife in my profile, it has the line above oh, yeah. the profile name. So half the time I pick her name because I look at the line and the line's underneath her name instead of mine. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. I think we need a, some sort of a standard as to how that should fall. But, but coming back, come back to these cigars. Um, I'd be interested to try them, but my inner retailer says, okay, how do you, how do you go about doing that? Well, I think, you know, I think you have to know your shop, right? Like, I don't think the Pennsylvania Broadleaf would do well here compar- considering some of the other stuff in the humidor. But the, you know, the, the Connecticut Seed Ecuador, uh, that would probably, the Friendly Isle, I bet that would do well. You know, the Mexican San Andreas does well here, and even the Ecuadorian Habano. I mean, those three sound like the profile of the shop, and I think that's how you have to do it. I, I would definitely like to try one of these if I can ever find where the, find them on shelf somewhere. And can I talk to the reps for a minute? I don't think when, any of them listen, but go right ahead. When I'm at your booth at the trade show and you've got eight cigars laying out there in front of me, and I say, okay, if I only wanted to bring in three facings, what would you recommend? Don't look at me like we're starting negotiations on how many facings you get to bring in. Right. Give me your three best. And then say, and if you want something different, we can try this one next, or we can try this one next, or we, you know. Yeah. Once you, you know, have a plan, but don't have a plan that includes the upsell. That's why I hate buying used cars. Don't don't be on the defensive from the outside. Right. Don't, don't, Don't try to give me the upsell right off the bat. Take what I'm giving you. Give me your best shot, and I'll come back to you. I right. guarantee you. know when we when we negotiated with um, Big Sky, they said, "Okay, what do you want?" We said, "Well, we definitely want the cryptid." And what other two would you recommend? They said, "Well, this gives the best the tent poles of our mm-hmm. different flavors here, and this is what we would bring in." And the Mad Minnow's real cheap and comes in a small box. If you would like to include them in the order, we'll cut you a deal. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and that's the way you do it. You don't say, "Oh, well." If you don't bring in five or six facings, I mean, there's a very good cigar company. I'd have loved to have brought them in, but I couldn't because they wouldn't cut. They wouldn't come in less than eight facings. Yeah. And I'm just not going to give up that much of my humidor. To eight them. facings or eight lines. Eight lines. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just not giving up that kind of space in my humidor for that. All right. Next one from Half Wheel is Sinistro to release new batch of Last Cowboy limited editions. Now, I don't know much about Sinistro cigars. I know, I think I've had one. I think you gave me one maybe at one point. Um, I believe they are a Nicaraguan brand. So these are, um, see, Connecticut Broadleaf Maduro wrapper, San Andreas binder, and Dominican Pilato Cubano and Nicaraguan tobacco in the filler. You know, it's a pretty good recipe. You know, it's, they are, and... They retail for about seventeen bucks each, or sixteen forty-three, which, in in this day and age, isn't that big a deal. Here's what's interesting about them: 
they're packaged to look like a roll of dynamite. Right. Yeah. So it, there are, what, seven cigars in red cardboard wrappers with, you know, satin bands to look like electrical tape, holding seven of them together in a bunch. And all of the pigtail ends are wound together like a fuse. As far as gimmicky marketing goes, this is phenomenal. It's strong. It's It looks the part. They got everything right. It comes in very basic wooden crates, no hinged lid. It's a single pop-off, just like a dynamite crate would have been. You know, they took the time to, to wrap the fuses together. It's that little attention to detail that I really, really like. And it looks like they're even packed in what's probably loose tobacco, but, you know, to, to be like the sawdust that they used to pack them on to keep them from... Well... We say, you know, this came out once before, and one of the interesting parts of this article is they used to be produced in the La Aurora factory. Now they're being produced in the El Artista factory. Yeah. So as the shift in factories, now that wrapper, do you think that's a natural hue, or do you think they have done they have done something to it? I think that is creative photography. I think that's the lighting playing with that wrapper more so than it is anything else. Um, it doesn't look altogether tampered with to me. You know, the older I get, the longer I smoke cigars, the more I want a toothier wrapper, the less attracted I am to these smooth, ultra, you know, look like they've been sanded and primed wrappers. Mm -hmm. I'm now more attracted to the wrapper that feels a little more natural, a little more cigar-y. Which, this one has that appearance, for sure. Oh, it definitely does. And So here's my only gripe with this. And I realize this is because I'm a product of somebody who has been, as of today, smoking for 19 years. I, $16, $17 is too much for a gimmicky marketing. You know, if this cigar was $12, $13 at the high end, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, You've got a lower price point, so it may not be as high a quality cigar. So, yeah, we, we, we prop it up with some creative right. marketing and things like that. At 17 bucks, I'm expecting a little more understated, let the cigar speak for itself. Am I, am I being nitpicky here? I feel like I am. Oh, no. No. You, you know, what's the old saying? Either pay people well or treat them well, but if you treat them well, you can pay them less. If you treat them poorly, you must pay them more. Right. And I think it's cigars are the same. If you're going to gimmick them, then it's by definition probably going to be a lesser smoke. It, yeah, it's, which is a shame. I mean, I will still, if I ever come across one of these, I will still try it. Just on the marketing alone, I think they knocked it out of the park. I think it creates a lot of excitement around the line. And um, But yeah, I just... When I see that, I'm not thinking $17 a stick. No, $17 a stick. But, you know, we're rapidly entering the era when the $16 stick is going to be more the norm than the $12 stick. Which is why I think I'm being a little nitpicky. Because it, you know, over the course of the last, it feels like six months, cigar prices have skyrocketed. And I feel like what I'm seeing is should be a $12, $13 cigar I mean, that is a $16 cigar now. So maybe I'm being a little unfair in judgment. Maybe that's right. That may be, but I'm like you. I want If you're going to make it a gimmicky cigar, it's going to be, it's going to start out behind the eight ball with me as far as it, as it being a good stick. You know, yeah, if the Alma Fuerte 
which is a phenomenal $23, $24 cigar, came in a coffin with flames painted on the side in lacquer, I, I'm not going to think of mu- as much of it, right? Right. Now, here's a question for you. All right. You can tell me if this sounds legit. A lot of times I'll be in the humidor and someone will be in there and they'll look like they're confused. And I'll ask, hey, can I help you out with something? I'm, I don't work here, but I've helped them I put this humidor. I spend more time than the people that do. Well, I've, I helped them put this humidor yeah. together is the line I use. And they'll say, yeah, and inevitably they'll say something about a flavored cigar. And I always say, okay, I don't smoke flavored cigars. And I said, the reason I don't smoke them, and this is always the reason I give, is you don't flavor good tobacco. And I feel like I'm instantly smoking an inferior quality of tobacco that they're trying to make up with the flavor. Is that insulting to someone that smokes flavored cigars? Uh, probably. But do you care? Not especially, but if there's a better way to approach it. I don't want to say... What I want to say is, no, I smoke real cigars. Right. You know, I, I don't. So need... we've at least brought you down from that level. Of, right. I'm, of I'm meeting you in the middle here. Yeah. I'm meeting you in the middle and saying, I just don't feel like it's the quality of tobacco because why would you put flavoring in high quality tobacco? No, I mean, I think it's a fair. I think it's a fair point. Um, but it's if they are somebody that either hasn't made the transition into non-flavored cigars yet or somebody who simply prefers it can it can sound like you know the guys that only drink black coffee as if it's a personality trait and they have to tell you if right. they see you but it kind of has that energy to it yeah I can get that the guys that oh well, you put cream oh, sugar in yeah. don't you want coffee yeah yeah, yeah those yeah. guys yeah those guys and it, it's okay if you don't like cream and sugar in your coffee that's fine and if I do that's fine yeah it, would you rather I never be a coffee drinker as to not drink it the way you do? <laughs> I mean, yeah. so anyway, well, you want to step away for a break real quick? Yep. When we come back, we got some guy trying to pedal a hamster wheel across the Atlantic. We also have the very first ever. We have two first ever's. One is will Shane eat it for once? And uh, our first cryptid corner. I'm so excited about I'm, that. I'm not sure I want this to be a feature, but it's going to be for the next couple of weeks. So we'll see how we're, this goes. We're going to give it the old college try. We'll test drive it. All right. We'll be back with that more after this. Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane, sitting across from the man who turned down the job offer from Dumbash Cigars, Mr. Trey Dedman. I probably would, yeah. <laughs> we had that argument a couple of weeks ago. That's a callback. I had to, I had to bring that up. That was that's funny. You know there you know there's a dumbash cigars out there somewhere. Somebody, somewhere. Somebody has had to have done it. Somebody had to think this will be a great joke. Let's call ourselves dumbash cigars. It's pronounced Dumash. <laughs> Do you remember that ad from the nineties? Oh yeah. Yeah, I just I I'm sure that that that's there, but Speaking of Dumashes, yes, Coast Guard arrests a man trying to run a giant hamster wheel across the Atlantic. So this article struck me in the giggle box for a couple of reasons. So the guy, and they give his name in here somewhere, Bellucci, was 
he's an Iraqi immigrant. So he clearly bought all of the propaganda in the immigration folder, right? Like the land of the free and, and right. all of this paved with road, all opportunity, all this. And he has got this idea that he wants to walk to London from the U.S. Right. In a giant hamster wheel with paddles and buoys to keep it afloat. I got to say, a novel idea... I applaud his ingenuity, and I think he's an absolute moron for even trying to attempt it. But I think it's hilarious, and I think it's great. Well, I read this story. I'm sorry, Iran, not Iraq. I read this story, and there's a lot of odd parts about this. (laughs) Okay. If he had said, hey, I want to go from New York to um, England in a giant hamster wheel with floaties on it and walk my way over there. And I'm going to have a boat with me. Right. An appropriate boat will be a follow boat, much like when you do a long bike ride or something like that. Right. I'll have a chase vehicle with me just to keep me from dying. The, the people that swim across the English Channel oftentimes will have a boat alongside just for safety. Right. If he had went that road with it, I would have been okay. Well, see, and here's the first place where it struck me is the, the, coast, the reason the Coast Guard got involved is because it's not safe. Okay, where, where is it in our Constitution that we're only allowed to do things that have no inherent risk? Like, I, what's illegal about doing something dangerous? I've never understood, case in point, if you fail an attempt at suicide, you usually go to jail. For which is the dumbest thing in the world to me. It's it's me. It should be my choice. It's you know that like what. So anyway, so they, they pull this guy over, and they say this is dangerous. We're not going to let you do it. So according to a crim- criminal complaint filed in the U.S. District Court, court um, so they assessed his vehicle. And so they pull up alongside the hamster wheel and ask him where he was headed. And he said London, which was more than 4,000 miles away. He was asked for the vehicle's registration, which I think is hilarious. Um, and he said it was registered in Florida, but that he couldn't find the registration. I guess he's got an extra pocket in the hamster wheel he lost track of. I left it in my other. <laughs> I left it in my other hamster wheel. Yeah. Um, so they determined he was conducting a manifestly unsafe voyage and um, they then approached him in a small boat and instructed them, him to join them, and they were ending his voyage. He replied that he had a 12-inch knife and would attempt to kill himself if the officers attempted to remove him from his vessel. So they retreated. Uh, then they tried again the next day or so to get him to join them on the small boat. He displayed two knives and threatened to hurt himself if officers boarded his vehicle. He also, quote, threatened to blow himself up along with his vessel. They saw him holding wires in his hand and believed him, the complaint says. The following day, a second Coast Guard boat named Campbell arrived and sent a small boat to Bellucci to deliver food, water, and word that a hurricane was expected. Okay, now we've got a little bit. Okay, I can, I can kind of understand now. He refused again to leave his vessel, and, but told the officers that the bomb wasn't real. <laughs> So, okay, already he's walking back his threats. Um, 
On August 29th, they sent one more small boat. This time, they were able to safely remove him from his floating hamster wheel, and he was brought ashore and hold, held on $250,000 bond. If he's a flight risk, you know he's going in the hamster wheel. It should be easy enough to catch him. You don't need a quarter-million-dollar bond. Well, first and foremost, the Coast Guard handled this incorrectly. He's also not allowed to go near the ocean or board a vessel. I would have just brought out a cutter of a 50 cal on the front and started shooting those floats on the side. And about the time he was knee deep to waist deep in water, he would start acquiescing to my demands. Right. <laughs> this would this should have been an easy problem to solve. I think. And if you look at the picture, you know those look like the um, exercise balls yeah. that he's got in there. I think a 50 cal, probably not even that heavy. But 50 cal would make the necessary statement that I was trying to make. Right. A sharpshooter of a 50 cal starts blowing those things out from under him, and he starts sinking. He says, "I'm gonna take a knife and kill myself." Say, "Well, if that beats drowning, go for it." But if you cut yourself, you're going to attract sharks. So we're keeping shooting balloons till you get on this boat or we sink her to the bottom. Right. These are your choices. So all of that to me is hilarious. And then you get to the next half of the article. It was not his first try. <laughs> this was far from his first encounter with the Coast Guard. He has attempted voyages in a similar homemade vessel in 2014, 16, and 21, all of which resulted in U.S. Coast Guard intervention. At a certain point, can you put him on a no-purchase list for these giant hamster balls? <laughs> like, just put a flag on his credit card accounts, and when you see him buying a lot of buoys, just step in then. Don't wait for him to put it in the ocean. Well, you know, it's kind of like um, everybody says, you know, Batman keeps his secret and Iron Man keeps their secret identity. You should be able to cra track their visa statement. I mean... If if I'm a UPS driver and I deliver to a CD warehouse, 10,000 piranha, one 18,000 tank, a 150 foot of rope, and a pulley system, I'm going to assume I'm delivering the Joker. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to yeah. assume that I'm unwittingly contributing to a, an overly elaborate trap to kill the bat. Right, exactly. I might, I might put up the bat signal myself, say, hey, this is a UPS guy. I just want to let you know that warehouse on 5th and Main... Yeah, he's going to drop you in a piranha tank. <laughs> I just, I, you know, that's, that's my big flaw in the comic book things is just the acquisition of, you know, where do you, where do you get a giant steel cage that falls from the ceiling? Right. I, you, you've got to be a pretty good... It's, I saw something uh, recently, too, about, you know, superheroes. You know, once they discover their talents or whatever, they always go out in these highly elaborate costumes, right? Like, what are the odds... If you've ever tried to sew, like, athletic, stretchy fabric, it's a pain in the ass. So, like, what are the odds that all the superheroes are also master seamstress and seamsters? <laughs> well, obviously, they have a, you know, um, the, 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 Amazon, the, moon. the Amazon Prime series, Invincible, covered this. They actually have a superhero tailor, mm -hmm. you know, and he's always developing new, more bullet-resistant fabrics and things like that. So, I, th I can even overcome that, though... I think I could track him down fairly easy. Okay, who ordered the 1,500 bolts of Kevlar? Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, why is that never a feature on a, on a Batman episode or, or a Justice League or the Avengers or whatever of, like, tracking down the person who makes all the costumes? Because they know everyone's aliases. Like, they're the real target. Well, and is some dude in China stamping out batarangs? Yeah, and just not... <laughs> not well, although they did kind of uh, address that in the Batman... 
the Chris Nolan Batman series. Yeah, to a degree. To a degree. But yes, I'm just so back to this guy and the ha- the giant hamster wheel. I applaud the guy. Okay, here's the thing. If he just wants to get out and try to do it, then the Coast Guard, I'm sure after the first time across in the hamster wheel, the Coast Guard sent him a nice letter and said, hey, we're not against you taking the hamster wheel to England, but we would like you to do it in such a way that you're less likely to go to a watery grave, hire you a boat, do the things, do this the right way. I'm sure there's a procedure. I guarantee you, so you got to buy a permit to climb Mount Everest. Right. Um, we're going to talk about a story next at next show about getting a permit to shoot certain deer. Yeah. Um, you've got to buy. I'm sure you have to have a permit to swing the swim the English Channel. I don't know if you do or not, but I I, I see your your point is well taken. But the thing with the ocean is that you know the U.S. only controls the ocean for a certain point. So. Just let him get to international waters, and it's your, not your problem anymore. Well, it is if he's, you know, screwing up shipping lanes or causing, you know, freighters to have to pull over and help him because he's, his hamster wheel's sinking yeah. and stuff like that. I can, I can understand how the Coast Guard would still want to do something like that. I would love to see some eccentric billionaire catch wind of this story and go, you know what? I'm going to, you know, I've got a buddy in Congress because all billionaires have a buddy in Congress, right? And we're gonna we're gonna pave the way for you. We'll hire the boat. We'll do this. We'll do it legit. I want to see this guy try because just try and walk four thousand miles. You know, much less in a hamster wheel, much less against tides. So he's probably going to end up walking probably seven thousand miles just to get the four thousand miles across the Atlantic. Hey, let's hire him a sponsor. I'm sure Petco would throw a few bucks at this. Right. Pet Smart or one of the many quality hamster wheel manufacturing companies in this world. You would Let's think. get him a sponsor. It, it's not a bridge too far for him to just have a boat to follow him. Yeah. So I'm 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 against this guy, and uh, I'm against people that do stuff like this just for the for the giggles out of it. All right. So this is the one I'm excited about. We teased it at the end of the last half of the show. Will Shane eat it? Now I know. For a fact that you, for whatever reason, just plain bad taste, I think, hate Mediterranean food, Greek food especially. What are Moroccan meat cigars and what are they made out of? Okay, I'm opening the article now. You actually put in there that you didn't want me to open the article and I've honored that request. So for many households in the U.S., a plate of party food involves items like chicken nuggets, jalapeno poppers, and mozzarella sticks. Um... Inner Moroccan, but why not mix things up? Inner Moroccan meat cigars, a party food hailing from, you guessed it, Morocco, although they're common in Israel as well. They're sort of like spring rolls and are made out by rolling up a mixture of ground beef, crushed tomatoes, and spices in a special type of pastry dough. They are then fried until the result is crispy and golden brown. Um, Of course, there's a little more nuance to it, uh, but essentially it is... A, a pastry filled with meat and spices and tomatoes. Yeah, I had no problem with it. Even knowing that they're Moroccan, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean kind of spices, it's yeah. going to be up. Oh. Yeah, I'd give it. I'd give it a shot. No, I, I don't. I doubt I would enjoy it, but I wouldn't. I would take a bite. Those look phenomenal to me. You know, um, my sister-in-law. She had Mediterranean food at her wedding. Mm-hmm. And I politely slipped out before, prior to having to dine upon that. And when I called my sister-in-law this morning and asked for breakfast, she's like, no, all of us are sick from the Mediterranean cuisine. Really? 
That's a good decision, Shane. Well, granted, you picked it up two and a half hours before it was going to be consumed, so that might partly be on that. And it and it said in the garage. Oh so, Jesus! So yes, I I can certainly imagine that that contributed to it. But yeah, I don't. Um, you know, now if you said it had curry in it, I'm out. Okay, it's it looks like it's ginger, nutmeg, allspice, and paprika, and cumin and cinnamon are the primary spices. Yeah, I'd give, I'd, I'd give that a shot. I'd roll the dice. I might, I might have to see if I can figure out what that dough is made of, and I'll, I'll make some for us. It said you can get it at kosher supermarkets. I don't know if we have any kosher supermarkets around here. I'm sure we have at least one in Nashville somewhere. All right, now to the, the part of the show that I've looked forward to since the beginning of it. So we're going to try a new segment. This is on a trial basis. Trey, this Trey is will get just to- for you. I did this uh, mostly because I wanted to see you counter my position on this. So, all right. So with drones and webcams, volunteer hunters join a new search for the mythical Loch Ness monster. So this is going to be the largest ever search for the Loch Ness monster that has ever been conducted. It's, you know, they're going to sweep the, the whole, the whole lock, the whole lake. And so I got thinking about this. And we can talk more about, like, what they're going to do and all that stuff. It's a two-day event. We have technology now that we've, unlike anything we've ever had, we have sonar, we have radar, we have, um, you know, underwater submersibles. We have all of these things. And the lake is a finite area. So... Suffice it to say, if the monster is still in the log, I'll I'll say it that way, assuming that it ever was there, let's say if it is still there, we have all of the technology and the forethought and planning abilities, you know, military strategy, whatever, to sweep the entirety of that lake and find out definitively once and for all if it exists. Well, here's the problem with cryptozoology. And here's the common thread that keeps cryptids cryptids. They are trying to find it. The only thing science will ever accept is a body. Science will never accept a sonar image. They will never accept a drone image, an underwater camera photograph of it. Uh, They'll never accept anything short of a body. Right. And the kind of people that hunt cryptids are not out there to kill cryptids. Right. So to, to say, yes, do we have the technology to find it? Yes. Um, do we have the technology to send down a death charge and kill one and reel it up and hang it out on the dock like a marlin for everybody to see? Sure. But do we have the will to do that? Well, I guess for me, it's more the, the other direction. Like, let's say we got, I don't know how deep the, the water in the lock is at its deepest point, but let's say, let's say 100 feet. Uh, Closer to eight, but go ahead. Okay. I mean, eight feet? 800. Oh, 800. Okay. So we possess the ability to create a dredge net that deep. It would be really expensive for something. But theoretically, you could just dredge the whole lake. And, and, And if nothing popped up, that to me is definitive that it doesn't exist. But environmentalists are not going to let you dredge a lake. They will if you're not intending to leave any, to, to take anything. 
You never get never get it off the drawing board. I guarantee you, PETA and AFTA and AFLAC and everybody else would be out there trying to keep you from doing this. I from think dredging you could because what if you pull up a rare sturgeon? Yeah, but you're not going to pull anything out. You're going to use it as basically a way to say, like, so you mark off in quadrants, right? And you use it as a way to say, okay, we've we've scanned this area, but we're preventing anything from going back that direction. And so you move it around just to cordon off so that anything that was collected and counted here doesn't get collected and counted, counted there. I haven't worked out all the details, but... I think the bigger thing is the people who are into, into cryptozoology and, more importantly, the people that live in that area of Scotland rely too heavily on the possibility of it still being there. So any, any type of full-scale investigation that would definitively prove once and for all whether or not it exists or not, that's what's holding it back, I think. Yeah, I mean, would we know Loch Ness existed if not for the Loch Ness Monster? Right, exactly. I mean, do we know Loch Nan, Loch Aruba, Loch Bazan? You know, so, yes, if you did pull the Loch Ness Monster up out of there and it turned out it was just the last Loch Ness Monster, because it's not unheard of. You know, Greenland sharks live over 500 right. years. It's not, a, it's not inconceivable that you could drag up the last one. Right. So, and, you know, the problems with this all, yes, it's always going to be a mystery because there would never be, there would never be a moment that it would be profitable to end the mystery. The, exactly. the reality would never be more valuable than the mystery. So the big question and the reason I, w- the question I wanted to pose to you is this because so with Sasquatch or Bigfoot or any of his other names you know we're talking about the vastness of the wilderness whereas this is a finite area there's only so many places this thing can hide and we don't have any evidence to suggest that there are underwater caves right the lake is just the lake let's say somebody was able to figure out a way to basically dredge the lake and comb it with a fine tooth comb and determine once and for all whether or not it's in there. And PETA's happy, AFTRA's happy, whatever. Like all of the, you you do it in such a way. Um, So that's a big if, but let's say that was able to happen. Does proving that Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist and not even being able to uncover a body or, or bones or anything like that, does that call into question the validity of other cryptids? Yes and no. So the biggest blow to the Loch Ness legend was when it was discovered that the surgeon's photo was fake. Right. The famous, the most famous Loch Ness monster photo, the surgeon's photo, has long been revealed to be a fake. And there's been some good photos. There was actually one just two weeks ago, an excellent photo taken from a drone of a Loch Ness monster. And it, and it had the classic Nessie shape, and you even see it move in this video. And it was a very, very nice photo come off of this. And I'll have to find the article. Um, so, yes, if you proved 
you would never prove to the hardcore guy that needs to believe in the Loch Ness monster, needs to believe he's not wasted the last 40 years of his life with binoculars trying to see it. You would never get conclusive proof for him. The same as you'll never get conclusive proof that it does exist without a body. Right. Although, that being said, you know, I don't nec- I like the legend of the Loch Ness monster and cryptids in general, but I don't necessarily know that I believe in any of them. Um, I think some are more vo- some are more valid than others, et cetera. But I think for me, you know, there's going to be what hundreds of people out here at, at once with drones, with sonar, with all of this stuff, and news agencies. So if over the course of this investigation, and you know, there's going to be people out there making documentaries of it too. Oh, sure. If, you know, someone has a, a submarine underwater and they have video of it and there are 15 people back at base camp watching the video at once, and I would believe that. You know, it's, now would everybody come out and say, oh, well, it's probably doctored? You know, maybe. But if, if, if that would be enough evidence for me. But the vast majority of the people still don't believe in Bigfoot and we have the Patterson-Gimlin film. Um, you it know, doesn't have the same... The problem with that, though, is that it doesn't have the same um, audience in real time that this has. And that's, that's what adds the validity to it for me, is that this is a number of people collectively seeing it at the same time. Yeah, with, I'm, and I would be with you. I would be with you that, okay, if they gave me in, sonar won't do the job. Right. Sonar is just going to tell you where to put the camera. Yeah. That's all sonar is going to do for you. Um, sonar, but if you hit it, if you blipped it with sonar and you dropped a UAB and you got a picture of Loch Ness Monster swimming by and I'll and followed alongside of it because we have the ability for great underwater photography. Exactly. And I'll then, yes, I think the majority of people would believe it, but it might be like the UFO thing. They may say, okay, so. Right. (laughs) Well, then, then the people of that area of Scotland have a bigger problem, which is people trying to hunt it. Because oh, yeah. once you have proof that it exists, some billionaire trophy hunter is going to make it his life's mission to be the guy who pulls it out of the water. Yeah, you know, Steve Rinelli has, said, has probably the great, greatest quote about Bigfoot. He said, the first, one, the first man to kill one should get a medal and the second man should go to jail. Right. <laughs> and that's probably kind of what it is. But, you know, as far as on my list of cryptids that could exist... Loch Ness Monster doesn't really make the cut for me. Really? And as much as I like the cryptid thing, and as much as I put into it as far as just time and enjoying myself with it, um, the fact that the surgeon's photo was disproven and that all the other photos could be something else so easily, and just the nature of it being underwater, I'm I'm pretty pretty skeptical about Nessie. I'm pretty pretty much, nah, I'm not up for Nessie. All right. That, that's, that's fair. That's fair. So we've got time for one more. So you talked about this earlier in passing. So the city of Pittsburgh is seeking archers to help deal with the deer population crisis in parks. Now, you know, municipalities often have these you know, wildlife management things. And for once, I feel like this is something that you and I can both get behind. So... The there are going to be thirty hunters that well so there hunters in the area are able to enter a lottery 
at which point 30 will be chosen uh, to, to be given a particular part of one of two parks. And th- it's actually, it's really well thought out what they're trying to do. They're having a lot of issues with um, just the the havoc that an over the, the overrunning deer population has on an area. Yeah, an overrunning deer population is going to give you a couple of problems. One, it's going to increase the tick population. Right. It's going to contribute to much poorer health among the deer that are alive. It's going to inbreeding becomes a huge problem at a certain point where you start getting mouth, you know, anomalies and malformed deer and things like that. And overpopulation is as dangerous to a species as anything you can have. Right. It's it's just like in business. The worst problem you can have is is too little business. The second worst problem is too much. Right. It's, it's the same kind of thing. So. The Frick Park is 644 acres, and Riverview Park is 259, so the, it's combined. So anyone who wishes to hunt in one of the parks will enter a lottery system. Here's the criteria to be able to, to do this, and this is where I think they've done such a good job of, of really thinking through what they're trying to accomplish. To be eligible, you have to live in Allegheny County. You have to have a clean criminal check. Pennsylvania Game Commission background check and purchase an antlerless deer permit for the Pittsburgh Wildlife Management Area. Okay, all well good so far. The other thing I like that we mentioned, they haven't mentioned here yet specifically, is that it's archery only. So we're not dealing with firearms in the city limits. We're we're talking about, you know, people who already have a, a, a high heightened level of skill for hunting just by virtue of the fact that that's their their weapon of choice. Uh, after being selected from the lottery, the, those archers will then be required to attend an accuracy test. If the accuracy test is passed, each hunter will be assigned a hunter ID and a specific location within the park where they are permitted to hunt. Um, there is a zero tolerance policy and will be immediately removed from the program if they are found to have violated any program guidelines. Additionally, they must shoot a doe first as, and then that meat will be donated to a, to a food bank. And then archers who shoot more than two deer from their area will be given preference in subsequent seasons. So I just think that is, oh, and they're not allowed to publicly share pictures of their harvest. I just think that's so well th- thought out and set up. I, I hope this goes well for them. I do, too. I think it's a great ideal. I think it's something that we're going to have to come to terms with is the, you know, we play at Heatherhurst Golf Course when we go to Crossville, and their deer population is out of control. Uh, They're destroying the greens. They're destroying the fairways. They're, you know, sometimes you'll go up there to hit, and there'll be five deer standing on the green, and you'll have to hit into the deer with your golf ball and try to get them to leave the green to go up there. Um as these populations, you know, what the what the the PETAs and all these people don't understand, controlled harvest is the most important facet of wildlife management. Right. And this is a very controlled harvest. I don't agree with the not posting on public pictures. I think that's a little bit of overkill. That's the one that I'm kind of here or there on, but I can certainly understand maybe why. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily make sense to me, but I can kind of understand why they because they, they don't want this to become a a thing. Well, a trophy hunt. Yeah, they right, want, yeah. they want it to do what it's set to do to be a population control. Right. They don't want this to become necessarily a trophy hunt. Yeah. 
you know, here in Tennessee, we have what's called nuisance permits. You know, my uncle has a farm down in Hardin County where they have to pull nuisance permits every year to go kill deer out of season because they're destroying the corn crop to such a great degree. Right. And they'll pull a nuisance permit and TWRA will come out there and they may kill 40 or 50 deer in a day. And then they, unfortunately, don't let them take the deer home. They're left out there to rot. They haul them off to somewhere to rot rather than actually that making seems use a shame. of it. It is. When you could donate the meat or whatever. Yeah. So there, there is a little bit of a flaw in TWRA's system. But I agree with this article. I like the thought of it. And I think that it's important, you know, to, for people to get used to, hey, we have to control their population. Yeah, especially when deer populations double every two to three years. And in 2018, Pittsburgh's animal control picked up 335 deceased deer. And in 2021, they removed 510. And these are mostly from car-related accidents and other types, because there are no natural predators to the deer in the area. So, yeah, something has to be done. Yeah, and I think this is a, a very good idea, and I'd like to see more places kind of adopt this. Um, the archery part makes sense because well-placed arrow is just as good as a bullet. Right. And it's a lot less likely to go hit the neighbor's house. And, and, and it doesn't result in a lot of 911 calls from neighbors of the park saying, I'm hearing gunshots and things right. like that. So I think that's a perfectly legitimate way to do it. I kind of I kind of praise Pennsylvania for for stepping up and doing this because I think it's... Um, it's definitely, it's time. It's time that you do some stuff like this to help control these populations. So tell me about your Alma Fuerte. Oh, well, it's brilliant, as always. Um, I do like Solomon better. It's funny, this one isn't giving me nearly the depth of, of flavor that I'm used to, but it's still, I mean, it's still a seven. I mean, it's still a perfect cigar, but it's, I definitely prefer the Solomon. This La Polina Blue, it's got age on it. Yeah. I can taste the age. Yeah. And the age has treated it very, very well. I've smoked a lot of the Blue Label out of the new batches, and they're good, but this is a step above that. Where normally a La Polina Blue for me is a five and a half, this is definitely a six, six and a quarter. Excellent. Um, the age has really enriched this cigar and helped it to move forward as far as flavor and melding. I'm I'm definitely a good solid six, possibly six and a quarter to this cigar because that the age has has really helped it. Excellent. Yeah, that's I I'm I'm glad to hear that because I was the blue label is a good cigar, but that this box has been excellent that I've been and it's definitely down to that age. Well, how do they get a hold of us, Trey? You can reach us at facebook.com slash thecigarcast. We're on Instagram and Twitter at thecigarcast and email info at thecigarcast.com. Well, thank you everyone for listening this week. Until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us. (laughs) 